This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Good afternoon. This is Earth Matters on The Bigger Picture. I'm Juliet Jacobs. Back in November 2022, the 19th Conference of the Parties, COP19, to CITES, the Convention on International Trade in Endangered Species, took place in Panama to discuss the future of the international trade in endangered species. At the meeting, Malaysia lobbied for two proposals to respectively upgrade and add protection for two songbird species, the straw-headed bulbul and the white rump shama, in the wild. In a huge win for Malaysia, both were accepted unanimously and will help against the smuggling of the two species into other countries in the region, particularly Indonesia, where there is a thriving songbird industry. So what follow-up needs to happen now since the proposals have been accepted in terms of supporting national laws, monitoring and regulation? So today on the show, I'm joined by Kanita Krishnasamy. She's the Director of Traffic Southeast Asia and she's going to help break it down for us. Welcome Kanita, how are you today? Hi, Juliet. Thanks for having me. I'm good. How are you? Very well, thank you. Absolute pleasure to have you back on the show. So, sorry that we're covering this so late. It was in November and everything was kind of going chaos, right? Um, But this is also very equally important uh, set of uh, negotiations, right? So, maybe for starters, can you help explain what the Conference of the Parties or COP19 to CITES is all about? Right. So, I guess the simplest way to um, explain is that this is basically the conference. It's the International UN Conference that regulates the trade in animals and plants. Um, And it's important to keep in mind that this is about international trade um, and rather focused on on the commercial aspects, but it regulates any kind of, of international trade. Okay. All right. Excellent. And um, and and there's plenty of countries. You know, I think there were what 184 parties to CITES, right, including the European Union. Um, so that means that the convention has near universal acceptance and authority over the international trade um, in all these different uh, threatened species. Am I correct in saying that? Yeah, correct. I mean, it is as long as a country is participating in any type of international trade and they are a party to CITES, they are bound by the commitments um, under the convention. Okay, excellent. And um, this year's conference was asked to consider stricter trade regulations for I mean, there was a lot, right? I think it was something like 600 species of animals and plants. I mean, you were you went to Panama, didn't you? I mean, talk to me a little bit about what the atmosphere there is like, you know, what went down, those sorts of things. I was in Panama and it was quite interesting. Um, the COP was great. We had people coming together for the first time after a really long time. Um, there was a lot of excitement in having face-to-face discussions. Um, and as is common with, with the CITES discussions, you have the big ticket issues like elephants, rhinos, um, tigers, pangolins, but you have, you know, other not so popular, uh, you know, species like seahorses and sea cucumbers and plants and, um, you know, corals and fisheries. So all of these issues were debated. Um, I think at a global level, there was a lot of expectations that, governments would make firmer commitments Mm. uh, to fulfill its obligation um, at CITES. A bit of a hit and miss in some cases, and some things were really good, some things uh, required a lot more improvement. But for us in Malaysia, and uh, particularly in the case of the two birds that were listed, it was really good because uh, we saw this great collaboration between Malaysia and Singapore to push forward these two listing proposals. Mm-hmm. Um, and the two species that we're talking about is the straw-headed bulbul and the white rump shama. Mm-hmm. And am I correct that the US also had something to do with the listing for the white rump shama as well? Yes. So 
um, you what happens with these leasing proposals is that they're usually sort of a, a lead country, but then they can collaborate with other countries. So the US was one of the co-proponents um, for that particular species, yes. Okay, and maybe you can help explain these appendices, right? So CITES has three appendices, am I correct? And um, that lists species according to the degree of protection they need, right, in terms of regulation mm-hmm. of the international trade. Can you talk to me about those individual appendix uh, appendices? Sure, there are, there, as you say, there are three. Um, I guess if we're talking about the 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 most important and the highest severity where species survival is concerned, we're talking about CITES Appendix 1 listed species. And this essentially lists species that are considered to be threatened from extinction mm-hmm. uh, or heavily threatened by trade. Um, and CITES Appendix 1 essentially means that no international commercial trade is permitted. CITES Appendix 2 is where a bulk of the species sits because we're talking about um, you know, species that in terms of their threat category can be considered least concerned by IUCN or they can also be considered um, endangered or vulnerable. So it's a huge threshold in that sense. But that's where that's why you also have this huge number of species that fall under the CITES Appendix 2 category. And what that means is that international commercial trade can take place but they absolutely have to be regulated. And this is where the problem lies. Mm. Um, You know, when you're talking about regulation at an international level, first and foremost, at a national level, countries must have the necessary laws. Um, If it's protected in one place, but not protected in another country, how do you regulate? How do you enforce? How do you implement? You know, there's always this blame game about, oh, but that person, that country didn't do this. Oh, but this country didn't do that. Mm. There's no quota system. So it becomes a very, very complicated issue. But that's not an excuse not to do anything. And that's precisely why the convention is there. It is meant to ensure that governments who want to trade in these species can in the first instance come up with regulations to support that trade to take place in a legal and sustainable manner. Okay. All right. Okay. Thanks for explaining that. And as I mentioned earlier, there are 184 parties to CITES, right? Is this uh, is this legally binding in any way? It's legally binding in the sense that, again, it falls back to the national leg- legislation of each country. Okay. Um, and there have been cases in the past where, you know, some countries have been put on a big spotlight at, at CITES where, um, you know, if trade is, international trade is is huge. Thailand, for example, came under a huge spotlight in um, around 2013 for the trade in ivory. There was this, thousands and thousands of products were available for sale very, very openly. Um, and at the time, the Thai legislation did not explicitly list African elephant in its law. So it was a bit of a loophole um, because if, you know, your national legislation doesn't say it is explicitly prohibited from trade, there's a bit of a loophole that people can use as an excuse. Um, so there was a, a big international community that came together and said, look, you know, things have to change in Thailand. Uh, and Thailand did. They, they came up. They changed their legislation. They came up with a regulation system. They went out there and they did this massive inventory of, I think, what amounted to over 600 tons um, of of ivory nationwide. It was a bit of a headache. Um, If you speak to them now, they'll tell you all about it. But there are cases 
uh, where, you know, if illegal trade is considered to be very serious, then CITES can take strict and firm measures to make sure that, you know, what needs to be done can happen. Okay. All right. So, okay. So, you know, I, I speak to other folks who attend the other COPs, right? So the Climate One and the Biodiversity One, right? <clears throat> and there's always an issue there of like, you know, what goes into the text, you know, the negotiations and things. I'm just trying to get a picture of what it's like for the uh, the COP, uh, the CITES COPs, right? I mean, is it the same sort of thing like you're fighting over text? Um, <laughs> is there those sort of like, you know, developing versus developed nations sort of issues, finance, those things also, uh, you know, prevalent in these talks? Oh, absolutely. And these discussions can go up at night. You know, all it takes is for one country to say something simple. It can be and, it can be or, it can be a comma, it can be a stroke. And that's it. You know, it derails the entire conversation. Um, But, you know, these things are important because it it has an actual impact on what a country is uh, obligated and committed to do. So that's why these discussions do take place. Okay. Okay. So it's, I mean, you were there in your capacity, obviously, as Director of Traffic Southeast Asia, right? But in terms of like the Malaysian delegation, I mean, who else was there representing Malaysia? Uh, we had quite a, a number of people from the ministry, um, uh, the Ketsa ministry previously, sure. uh, the Environment Ministry for Natural Resources. Um, and of course, we had colleagues from Perhilitan who were there. We had a number of other individuals from a number of other agencies, um, including fisheries. Um, we had uh, representatives from Sabah and Sarak as well. The Sarak Forest Corporation, for example, was also there because, and I think this, this contingent uh, from Malaysia was also to show support for the two bird species which Malaysia was leading on. So that that became quite a, a big agenda for, for Malaysia during this, this cytoscope. Of course, there were a number of other issues that are important for Malaysia as well, but because Malaysia was leading um, on one specific proposal and co-proponent for the other proposal with Singapore, this became quite an important topic for Malaysia at the side I see. That was actually going to be my next question. You know, like, how do you decide what we're going to to lead on, right? Because like, like you said, you know, it covers everything, right? Plant and animal species. We've got so many here. So, you know, I was curious to know how or why we decided that, you know, these were the two that we were really going to lobby for. So this is a really interesting question. I think you know, when, when you're talking about an international convention like this, um, currently CITES has, I think, over 38,000 species listed on CITES appendices. A, a country, a government has to decide on what they want to prioritize. Sure. Um, I think to some extent, they don't always have that luxury because, you know, if you're talking about 10,000 species at, at a national level, uh, where trade is taking place, legal or illegal or anything in between, they have no choice. Yeah. They have to respond to these issues. And this is why where it becomes quite important to bring together all the relevant agencies. So it, it doesn't become, you know, the sole responsibility of just one, one agency. Um, so that's why, you know, um, at, at a national level, we have what is called the CITES Management Authority and the many a number of, of CITES Management Authorities in Malaysia. You have um, the Forest Department, you have the Wildlife Department. Uh, in the case of Sabah and Sarawak, you, you have the Forest Corporation and the Wildlife Departments there as well, but also there are Forest Departments. Um, you have Fisheries Department. You, in some countries, they have quarantine. They have you know a number of agencies that absolutely have to come together to try and address this issue um, because it's not just about species protection. Mm. Um, it has links to national security. You have police involved in a number of countries. Um, you have 
issues regarding um, tax evasion, revenue, livelihoods issues, protected areas issues on the ground. So it is a very, very complex issue and does require a whole range of, of agencies to come together to try and address this issue in a proper way. Okay. All right. Let's just go for a quick break, Anita. When we come back, let's talk about, you know, this success, right? I mean, it was a huge win for Malaysia uh, lobbying for these two proposals that uh, for the to upgrade and add protection for these two songbird species. Let's talk about that more after this quick break. I'm speaking today to Kanita Krishnasamy. She's the director of Traffic Southeast Asia. We're talking about um, the recent, well, not very recent. It was back in November, unfortunately. We're only covering it now. But the 19th Conference of the Parties, COP19 to CITES, the Convention on International Trade in Endangered Species. We'll have more after this quick break. Keep it right here on Earth Matter. On the bigger picture, BFM 89.9. Welcome back. This is Earth Matters on the Bigger Picture. I'm Juliet Jacobs. With me today, Kanita Krishnasamy. She's the director of Traffic Southeast Asia. We're talking about the talks that happened back in November 2022, the 19th Conference of the Parties, COP19, to CITES, the Convention on International Trade in Endangered Species, which took place in Panama. And at the meeting, as uh, Kanita mentioned uh, before the break, Malaysia lobbied for two proposals to respectively upgrade and add protection for two songbird species. So they are the straw-headed bulbul and also the white rumped shama. This is for them in the wild. It was, you know, a huge win for Malaysia. We're really, really happy about it. Uh, let's talk a little bit about these two these two bird species, right? So, you know, Kanita, before, uh, I mean, I think it was last year, yeah, in 2022, I was I spoke to your colleague, Serene Cheng, uh, about this. And this is a phenomenon dubbed as the Asian songbird crisis. I think it's good to remind folks about that. Can you tell us about that? Absolutely. Now, this is not a new issue. Um, organizations like Traffic and a number of others have been researching the bird trade since the, the 1990s. And, you know, historically, if you go back, you will find this going back long, long, long way back because it is so much part of Asian culture. Well, not just Asian culture. I think this is a culture across the world, but it's quite a big thing here in Asia where people keep birds. It's There's a huge industry for the cage bird trade. Um, and within Southeast Asia, uh, it's pretty big in Indonesia, in Malaysia, in Thailand, in Singapore, in fact, across Southeast Asia. And as a result of that, we've seen how the trapping for many species um, to fulfill this, this demand has had an impact on species survival in the wild. Mm. Now, that... And that you know, the, the fact that we're seeing lesser or we're, rather we're observing lesser of these species in the wild, um, you know, was was an indication that we have to do something about it. So a group of, of experts um, who are working at a national, regional and international level came together um, for a summit in 2015. Um, and that's, you know, that's where we, we came up with this um, Songbird Crisis um, Summit. And it wasn't just, you know, meeting to get together experts to talk about how dire and terrible and depressing everything is, but we wanted to come up with a plan, right? We know what the issues are. What do we do about it? How can we solve this problem? How can we find ways around it? Um, and part of that process was about identifying species that are severely threatened by trade. At that point in time, we identified 28 um, species that are heavily threatened here in Southeast Asia, a vast majority of them. Uh, a vast majority of these birds actually occur in Indonesia, mm. but quite a number of them also are, are Malaysian um, species, Thailand, and of course they occur in a number of other countries across the region. But today, that was in 2015, today we have um, at least 68 taxa that have been identified. So the numbers are increasing, 
Um, and we expect these numbers to increase as more information comes to light, as more um, trade research is done, and as we get more information from the field where species are not being uh, observed uh, in the same way that they were in the past. So this is not an, a new issue. It is, however, an issue that we wanted to to raise at an international level because it's not songbird trade is not just affecting species in Southeast Asia. It is affecting species at a global level. Mm -hmm. So at the previous CITESCOP in 2019, um, the US government, um, together with Sri Lanka, actually put a decision forward um, to the CITES COP to emphasize the importance of songbird trade and conservation at a global level. So that provided a starting point to talk about these issues at a global level. So we fast forward three years later, we had we just had the CITES COP. Um, unfortunately, because of COVID, there was very little progress made to, to take forward a lot of the decisions that were made at, at that point in time. But the, the two proposals being led by Malaysia and Singapore gave us a chance and opportunity to, to talk about these issues um, again and to push for greater action on the ground so that these issues can be addressed at a global level. The Songbird Trade Summit and the conservation strategy that we came up with for our work here in the Southeast Asian region, it does provide a basis for work. So, in that sense, what it means is that we know what species are threatened. Um, we now need to identify what sort of work needs to take place on the ground. And part of that process is about making sure that trade, when they do occur, have the right legal protection and the right regulation in place. And that's where the two scientists listed species, for example, come into place. Okay, okay. It, it must be huge though, right? I mean, you're tracking all these different species. It's the regulated trade, it's the illegal trade. So there's like huge amounts of research that goes into this. Am I correct? There is a lot of research. And I mean, we, we I can't, you know, reinforce how important this is because without that research, without that evidence base, it's impossible to convince yeah. anybody that this is a problem, right? So we have to go out there and get that information. Yeah, because I remember when I was speaking to to Serene, right? I mean, she, we spoke about the Oriental magpie robins, right? Mm -hmm. And I was like, really? They are in trouble? Like, you know, you see them everywhere. See, people don't understand, right? And it's like, it's crazy, right? The kind of um, the volume uh, of these the, uh, these birds being captured and traded and, you know, all of that. Uh, absolutely. And, you know, this the Oriental magpie robin, this... Um, Murai Kampung. Murai Kampung, yes. It's Murai Kampung, right? It's in your backyard. You hear it. I mean, I hear these birds calling out at 3 o'clock, 4 o'clock in the morning and they wake you up. <laughs> we, we see them as such common birds. And people don't immediately connect or cannot connect the fact that these common birds are actually being trapped and smuggled in the thousands. And we're seeing this happen for the white ram sharma, which is actually the, the main reason why Malaysia led on this proposal. And unfortunately, in the case of the straw-headed bulbul, another beautiful bird, it's a beautiful singer. Um, the, the trapping for this particular species took place in the past and now the numbers are down to very, very few in the wild. Mm, okay. Yeah, because I was reading, you said that if any species deserves this listing, right, it's the straw-headed bulbul. So, I mean, okay, just, just to, re you know, repeat, um, basically, you guys went to, to Panama to uh, upgrade and add protection, right? So you upgraded the protection of the straw-headed bulbul and uh, added protection for the white ram shama. Am I correct? 
Correct. So, so let's let's talk about maybe the straw-headed bulbul first. Sure. Um, this is a species that is protected in most of its range. Um, in Indonesia, unfortunately, there was a, a law change in 2018, and they they removed it from the protection list. Um, but outside of uh, Indonesia, it is protected in other range states in Southeast Asia. Okay. Now, we're talking about a species that is critically endangered, which means it is one step away from extinct in the wild. Um, it sounds so dramatic, but it's so true for this species. I mean, we have a lot of birders, uh, you know, hobbyists who go out there bird watching in the forests here in Malaysia. And many of them will tell you that they used to be um, heard in the forests in in places like Balum Tamangur, uh, in places like Tamanagara, in you know all of the usual places where people go bird watching, you know wildlife watching, they used to be very common. They don't hear them as much in the wild. Mm. So we're not being dramatic for no reason. This is a species that needs all the help it can get because it is critically endangered. Um, it's estimated in the wild. Its population is estimated between 600 to 1,700 individuals. Oh. Um, and at the CITES COP, Malaysia and Singapore actually had a side event. Um, each government talked about these two proposals and they presented the, the basis and the justification for their proposal. And the Singapore government actually had a really interesting presentation. So, you know, you're introducing the species, right? Historically, its range is Thailand, Malaysia, Myanmar, um, Indonesia, Sumatra, Java, and then you have, you know, some records in Brunei and Singapore, right? So they showed us this big map, right? Imagine the landmass of Thailand, Myanmar, Malaysia, Indonesia all put together, and it's and then you shrink it down to its current stronghold, which is the tiny island of Singapore, right? Mm. So you've got this massive landmass across six countries, and its current stronghold is the tiny island state of Singapore. Um, that is where we're putting all our baskets in. Everything that needs to be done for that species to protect it in its current places where you can still find them, they're very rare, but they still do exist in some places in Malaysia and Indonesia. We absolutely have to do everything we can to make sure that the species does not go extinct. And so that's why that is really the only the reason why this proposal was uh, put forward led by Singapore and Malaysia to make sure that trade does not become the reason for the species to go extinct in the wild. Okay, okay. Because as it stands, there is no sort of, uh, it's the, the trade is not regulated in any way or there's very little sort of like protection? In Malaysia, it's actually already totally protected. Okay. So technically you cannot. But the thing with CITES, again, it goes back to why CITES is important and why it's relevant, right? So CITES is about international commercial trade. Yeah. Um, part of this is that different governments can come up with different ways of regulating and controlling trade. Mm -hmm. So some governments feel that, uh, not feel, some governments actually cannot take action if it is not listed under one of the CITES appendices or if, they, if there is no legal means for them to control this trade. So many countries actually when a species moves into a higher tier level like CITES Appendix 1, it means that they can actually 
put in place necessary control mechanisms, which means that if a particular species is coming into their borders, they can actually do something about it. Okay. So this okay. is where the CITES listing becomes absolutely crucial. It is not just about making sure that a country who's listing it or you know the, the species where it occurs can do something about it. It is about what other countries that are receiving or, or becomes a transit or importing countries can do something about it at that particular destination point as well. Really critical then. It's really, really essential that everybody comes to that consensus then, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so that was the straw-headed bulbul. And um, so now it's got uh, Appendix 1 listing. What um, What about the uh, white ram sharma? So that's the murai batu, am I correct? So that is in Appendix, uh, that's in appendix 1 for the first time as well? No, it's inside its Appendix 2 for two, the first sorry. time. Okay, 2. It was not listed. Not listed and now in Appendix 2, sorry. Okay, yes. Uh, so talk to me a little bit about what that means. Right. So this is a species that has a very wide range. Um, it occurs across, I think, 15 countries um, across Asia. So this was actually a, a bit of a cause for concern for some, because now it, it's quite easy to convince, you know, CITES parties that an international saying, okay, this species occurs only in, in five or six countries. It's, it's got a very small range. It's critically endangered. It's already threatened by trade please support this proposal. You know, it makes a strong case. Hmm. Here we have this Morai Batu um, occurs in, in big countries across Asia. At an international level, IUCN currently considers it least concerned. So there's very little going for it. But all of that aside, you look at what the evidence shows, right? We collected information on seizures and law enforcement. Now, this is just from six countries in Southeast Asia. Over 32,000 birds were seized since 2009, from 2009 to May 2022. Okay. Um, again, we're talking about CITES. It's about international trade. So from these 32,000 birds, over 17,000 birds were linked to international trade. Now, this means that illegal international trade is already taking place for a species that has very little protection um, on the ground, mm is not regulated internationally and does not fall under international purview where CITES is concerned. So that was the main reason why Malaysia led on this proposal. To make sure, again, it's it's not to stop trade. Species listed on CITES Bandix 2 can be traded. Yep. You just have to make sure they have the right legal and regulatory framework in place to make sure that trade is legal and can be sustainable in the future. Okay. And I guess, you know, now that they've been upgraded in the appendix and things like that, right, uh, how does that come to impact like governments, you know, um, enforcement agencies? It, it, I mean, what is yeah? what are the next steps, I suppose? So the next steps is probably where everyone's kind of scratching their heads and banging their heads <laughs> on the wall because, you know, going to, to an international convention and having this win is great. Yeah. But that's when all the work starts, right? After yes. that is when all the work starts. So the governments will have to come up with proper plans in place to make sure, you know, if this trade is going to continue at an international level, what sort of regulations um, have to be established? Um, does it need a quota system? How is the licensing going to be conducted? How are you going to regulate the, the trappers? How are you going to regulate the traders? Um, captive breeding for the species is taking place um, in a number of countries across the region. How can you assure that the animals entering trade are coming from captive breeding facilities if they say that they are? Yeah. Or are they coming from wild-caught specimens that are entering into the trade? So 
it's a very, very complex and complicated issue. Um, but I mean, it's it's not a new issue, right? Yeah. Um, governments have been trading in, in animals for many, many years. There are systems in place that we can learn from. So we're not starting from scratch. In fact, Malaysia already has a number of these regulations in place for other species that can be that can be trapped and, and traded legally or even species that are captive bred. So it is about making sure these tools are established and put in place and enforced where the white rump sharma is concerned. Okay. All right. So I wanted to ask you this, right? So, you know, what has history shown us uh, when such sought after species are not properly regulated, you know what what happens, right? If we don't take this seriously, I think the most extreme outcome, unfortunately, is that the species go extinct. Now, in the case of white rump shama, this is a species which has um, unique subpopulations across its range in Indonesia, especially. Um, and experts in the field have already said that quite a number of them have gone locally extinct. If we don't try and put a stop to this and come up with better um, management and regulation measures, unfortunately, we're looking at species potentially going extinct in the future. Some of these species are strong and sturdy species. They can take some level of, of changes on the ground, but you know, to what, to what extent and do we want to take that chance? We are in a good position right now. The CITES listing allows governments to come up with measures to make sure that we don't end up in that situation where we see species go extinct. Okay. All right. So it's really important. And I mean, like you said, this is the first step, right? So now now the real hard work actually starts as well, right? I guess, you know, for anyone who's listening, right, what do you want them to know? Like, uh, what, what, why, you know, a lot of people may say, ah, birds, who cares, right? Um, but why is this so important, you know, for our protection, you know, for the our protection of our biodiversity and all of that? So th this is a really interesting question, right? I mean, I think people feel for different things differently. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I mean, if you talk about tigers, um, you know, you get a whole different reaction. You talk about elephants and rhinos in Africa, people have different reaction. And then you talk about, you know, things like Murai Kampung and Murai Batu, things that are common um, in, in some places. And people don't really see the value to that. I guess it's important to keep in mind that, you know, these are things that we have as Malaysians, we've grown up with, right? We've yeah. seen them in our backyards. We we know about them. We talk about it in school. You grow up learning about them. Uh, how would Malaysians feel if you don't actually get to see them anymore in the wild? You know, does it matter to them? Does it matter that we no longer have some of these really unique species, um, you know, that we've learned about and we've heard about growing up? Does it have an impact um, if you no longer have them in the world. I think it does. Yeah. Um, you know, it's it's part of our history. It's part of our culture. It's part of what's unique about Malaysia. You know, globally, um, you know, many countries talk about the fact that Malaysia is among the high biodiversity countries. We have been known for it. Um, you know, people people come to Malaysia. We, we attract tourism. Uh, the tourism industry does rely on that as well. So it's not just about protecting the species. Um, it is linked to the economy of the country. It is linked to to livelihoods. It's linked to, I mean, I talked about tourism. You know, our national parks are, are known worldwide. People come, people pay good money to come and see these species in the wild. So all of this will be affected if we don't protect what we have today in the wild. Mm -hmm. 
And this is another more sort of practical question. So, like, you know, I'm on a lot of these Facebook groups for, like, parks and things like that, right? And just just the, just the a couple of days ago, actually, uh, a hiker saw, uh, you know, some people with traps, you know, you know, trying to capture some birds. Uh, apparently, they were foreigners. Um, but, I mean, that, that doesn't matter. But uh, they said they were, they're just looking for it for pets and things like that. So, you know, these people were curious, like, what can they do in a situation like that? You know, like, we're walking in the park and we see some people trying to trap birds. Uh, is there something that we, as, you know, just bystanders can do? Absolutely. People should absolutely report it immediately to the authorities. Um, Pahilitan in Peninsular Malaysia has a hotline. Uh, MyCat uh, Conservation Alliance working on tigers also runs a hotline and the number is 019-356-4194. You can also report it to uh, conservation NGOs like traffic uh, or others, and we can channel that information immediately to the enforcement agencies because don't underestimate the value of that information. Mm. Um, you know, we've had successes. My cat's hotline, for example, has resulted in quite a number of successes where animals have been um, rescued uh, from illegal trade. Um, you know, they've been able to release the animals into the wild. Um, individuals who are you know, part of, of crime have been have been brought to book. So it's absolutely important that information, any information, however small, is channeled to the authorities so that at the very least they can investigate um, and it can potentially lead to, to firm action as well. Okay. All right. So definitely do something. And I guess I just remembered something, you know, that, that one that I was telling you about, the person was holding a parang. So that's why the person was scared to video it, but do it in a safe, I mean, surreptitiously or whatever, you know, find a way to kind of just like document it. Maybe you might not be able to to apprehend them, but it, it helps in terms of statistics and reporting and things like that, right? Or just realizing that this area is a hotspot for, for poachers perhaps, right? Absolutely. Yeah. I, I think, you know, it's, it's a, as you said, it's absolutely important to keep in mind um, that anything you do, you have to do it safely and carefully. Um, you don't want to compromise your own safety in any manner. Um, and we've had a lot of instances where people have found snares and traps and you know, all kinds of things in the forest. Um, and my cat actually does a, a cat walk. Yes, um, it's yes. a great walk in the forest where you actually have the ability to go into the forest and, and look at the habitat that, that wildlife use. But the catwalk has become um, a great way to get people involved in the fight to safeguard wildlife, um, particularly in terms of looking out for potential threats in the ground like um, snares and stuff like that. So I really would encourage people to learn more about my cat's catwalk and participate if you can. It's open to the public, right? Um, how can folks, um, yeah, how can folks find out more about it? How can they, uh, yeah, find out more information? Absolutely. Um, so it's it's a program designed for people to just be involved, um, and at the heart of it is about deterring poaching um, and to ensure protection of this particularly unique corridor which tigers use. So anybody who's interested, I please, please, please contact my cat. Um, that's M-Y-C-A-T and all the information is available online and somebody will get in touch with you on how you can participate in the events. 
Okay, excellent. And I do plan to, you know, try and get the MyCat people on as well for a talk. So I will definitely cover that. Thank you so much, Kanita, for joining me today. I've been speaking to Kanita Krishnasamy, Director of Traffic Southeast Asia. For more on everything that we've been discussing, you know, the uh, CITES, the COP2 CITES, um, and also the added protections to those two species of songbirds that we were talking about, you know, to find out more about the songbird trade, just head to traffic.org. So much information there. You guys have done so many research papers. And if you miss any part of our conversation today, just download the podcast at bfm.my slash earth or you can find it on the BFM app. This has been Earth Matters on The Bigger Picture, BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.